Good morning, noon or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I am your host, Doug McKenty. This is the 14th episode of The Shift, recorded on September 28th, 2017. If you like what you're hearing, please think about becoming a patron. That's www.patreon.com backslash The Shift. For more information, join our Facebook page at The Shift with Doug McKenty. Join the conversation on Twitter at McKenty. And for more about my archives or other information about The Shift, go to my webpage, theshiftnow.com. My guest on the program today is Dr. Andrew Wakefield. Dr. Wakefield was a relatively unknown academic gastroenterologist before being thrust into the limelight as a co-author of the now infamous paper entitled Leal Lymphoid Nodular Hyperplasia, Nonspecific Colitis, and Pervasive Developmental Disorders in Children, published by The Lancet in 1998. Though the article was admittedly inconclusive, it attracted huge controversy by positing a potential connection between autism and the MMR vaccine. As a result, Dr. Wakefield has suffered years of personal attacks, the eventual retraction of the article, and the loss of his medical license. He finds himself at the center of the vaccine controversy to this day. In an attempt to clear his name, he has authored two books, Callous Disregard, Autism and Vaccines, The Truth Behind a Tragedy, as well as Waging War on the Autistic Child, The Arizona Five, and The Legacy of Baron von Munchausen. He went on to direct the movie Vaxxed from cover-up to catastrophe with producer Del Bigtree that was first accepted, then rejected from the Tribeca Film Festival. Dr. Wakefield is now the subject of a new documentary film entitled The Pathological Optimist, due out on September 29th in New York City and October 5th in Los Angeles. Check out www.thepathologicaloptimistfilm.com for tickets, updates, and screening in a city near you. And thank you, Dr. Wakefield, for helping to make the shift. Welcome to the program. How are you doing today? Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. I imagine you're uh, keeping yourself pretty busy these days. Yes, life never seems to let up. You know, it just gets busier and busier and busier. Um, But it's all good. It's all good. Good. Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, I know you've been through so much. Watching the documentary and just getting your history was like, uh, you know, how how many punches do you have to take sometimes, I guess? I mean, it seems to me like you were trying to do uh, good work uh, and you just happened to stumble upon this connection that was not acceptable to the medical community and the the pharmaceutical corporations at large. And um, the next thing you know, the rest of your life is uh, having to be dedicated to... Uh, you know, dealing with this issue and and dealing with this controversy. So just to start off, um, will you let us know, you know, when did you first consider that there may be a link between autism and the MMR vaccine? Certainly, you know, I'm an entirely mainstream doctor. I was um, Mm -hmm. running a big research program at the Royal Three Hospital, part of the University of London. I guess I had about 19 people on my team, and we were looking at inflammatory bowel disease and uh, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, epidemic diseases. And we we posited that they may be related to some atypical abnormal pattern of exposure to measles virus for reasons. And that was way back in, you know, in the in the early 1990s. And um, we published a paper in The Lancet uh, linking measles, single measles vaccination to Crohn's disease and colitis. And on the back of that, parents started calling me mm-hmm. and saying, you know, um, my child was fine. They had an MMR vaccine and they uh, became very unwell. They had a very high fever. They had a seizure. They 
um, were distressed, high-pitched screaming, slept for days, and when they woke up, they were never the same again. They lost their speech-language interaction, and they eventually were diagnosed as autistic. And I stopped them and said, look, I know nothing about autism. Extremely rare condition, unheard of, you know, un not taught to us, certainly at medical school because of its rarity, um, how can I help? And the children had terrible gastrointestinal problems. And the medical profession had dismissed those gastrointestinal issues, you know, diarrhea, failure to thrive, uh, pain, uh, as just part of autism. That didn't make any sense at all. Um, these, these symptoms clearly reflected an organic disease in these children until proven otherwise. And that's the, the golden rule of medicine. You rule things out. You don't leap to the conclusion that this is part of autism. And so we investigated these children thoroughly with uh, some of the world's leading pediatric gastroenterologists. And lo and behold, the parents were absolutely right. The children had an inflammatory bowel disease. And when that was treated with standard medication for, say, Crohn's or colitis with diet and things like that, then the children did extremely well. Not only did their gastrointestinal problems improve, but their hmm. autism symptoms improved as well in far and away greater than just the children feeling better they started speaking again they started using words they hadn't used for years and that was the beginning of a very interesting journey but of course the parents are right about the bowel disease were they right about the vaccine we had an absolute professional and moral obligation to investigate that which we decided to do or at least i decided to do and that clearly was not a good career move but nonetheless was um, <laughs> was, I'm afraid, part and parcel of, of what you sign up for when you go into medicine. I don't work for the drug companies. I don't work for public health. I'm not here to endorse their particular belief systems. I'm here to respond to parents' concerns about what happened to their children, and that's it. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people would be surprised to find out. Uh, there's a couple of things that come up for me when I, when, as I was looking into this, and one is the connection between the gut and the gut biome obviously being a gastroenterologist this is what you were interested in and then what's going on in the brain with autism these seem to be brain disorders but then you you're talk about other things as well so can you clarify for the audience maybe you know what is the connection between say crohn's disease celiac disease all of these allergies that are coming up the gut biome and the autism and the autism spectrum because there seems to be some some kind of mechanism maybe that's connecting all of these together in some way is that true it is fascinating what is emerging, what is now the most consistent finding in autism research worldwide is the gut-brain link, mm -hmm. uh, one that put forward in 1998. And now everyone, Harvard, Yale, countries around the world, are confirming that the bowel is linked to the brain. Something going on in the gut is is at least part and parcel of autism and a whole host of other developmental problems not only does the and the microbiome to the bacteria in that in your gut a healthy microbiome is essential not only it appears for mammalian brain development but our actual day-to-day -day behavior emotions actions it's absolutely fascinating so this gut brain link is something that is really growing in strength what is the mechanism you know the sadness is, had this work been allowed to continue and pursue its natural course, I would be in a position to answer your question. Right. Now, but it was ruthlessly destroyed in an effort to prevent 
any credibility being given to the notion that vaccines could cause gastrointestinal injury, neurological injury, uh, and autism. So that's a, a great, great sadness. What is the mechanism? It could be that um, an immune reaction in the gut triggers an immune reaction in the brain. It could be that damage to the lining of the bowel allows things across the bowel that are toxic to the brain. Um, it could be that these toxins travel up through what is called the vagus nerve. So mm -hmm. the nerve supply from the brain to the bowel and back again, that there's a sort of Trojan horse effect that they get in uh, that way. So there are a whole host of possible mechanisms, none of which, of course, are mutually exclusive. They may all be operating to some degree or another, but we, we don't know. But what was obvious is that when the children, again, on the parents' insight, went on a gluten and casein-free diet, then that had a dramatic dramatically beneficial effect in many, many children. And again, the medical profession said, no, it doesn't, it's nonsense. And subsequent publications have confirmed that the parents are indeed right once again. So something happening in the bowel is having a profound effect upon the brain. And we need to understand the mechanism of that, because clearly that would lead to much better, much more refined approaches to treatment of these children. Mm -hmm. You're having success treating autistic children with diet, huh? So is that, uh, is that happening in aut autism treatment today or is the entire, I mean, it, it sounds to me like because you started touching on this vaccine issue, the entire medical community had to sort of ignore what was going on. So, so what's happening? I mean, you're starting to look into this connection. You're having some success treating autistic children uh, with diet and by analyzing this gut-brain connection. And then, um, because there may have been a link to the MMR vaccine, suddenly everything is shifting away from it. Is there? Do you think to this day still not enough uh, uh, effort put into looking at this connection with autistic children? Or what, I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me when I get into this conversation, for example, when I'm talking about vaccines with people, and I'm saying, well, maybe the vaccine is the connection with autism, then they say, oh, no, no, science has disproven that. But then science, mainstream science, doesn't seem to give you a reason, another reason for autism. Like, it's, surely uh, people are concerned about what's causing autism and what's going on. So what are the treatments for autism today? Uh, and are they taking this gut connection into account? Well, the answer to the gut-brain connection is yes, increasingly they are. But it could have been so much more, so much earlier, mm -hmm. and so much more money put into it. To, to expedite that process. It's, it's far um, out of proportion to the sheer volume of children. Um, but again, it, a lot of that has come about, that uh, failure to address this issue has come about because of the, the need to discredit the vaccine autism connection. Um, the mainstays of therapy are still behavioral interventions, but increasingly biological interventions are moving in and are moving in based upon an implicit understanding of the mechanisms actually how the disease is operating in children and whether this is nutritional supplementation or dietary intervention or anti-inflammatory medication or, or um, even medicinal marijuana uh, these are these are treatments that are really gaining a great deal of traction and what happens when what's so-called mainstream medicine, which is sort of pharma 
pharma industry driven, insurance industry driven medicine. I, I hesitate to call it mainstream. I've no idea what that means. <laughs> you know, they're just a, it's just a sort of industrial approach to to medicine that takes no account of what's actually happening to the children or the patients. So, um, when you in when when those fail to address the issue, parents take the take the lead. And so what we're seeing is parent-driven initiatives, which are leading the charge in new treatments. And, and medicine has been woefully lacking, been lagging behind those for many years, ultimately to discover that the parents were right all along. So it seems like a lot of people are talking these days about the, the toxicity levels um, that maybe are causing the autism, not just from the vaccines, possibly, but other uh, environmental toxins. But it seems like there are a lot of these toxins, like the aluminum and the mercury that you're finding in vaccines. Is that uh, a path that you've found yourself going on? Do you think that the detoxification of children with autism helps or, you know, the, a brain detox kind of thing? Um, what are your thoughts about that? I have no personal experience of it because I... As a gastroenterologist, I sort of pursued a different line of, of, of treatment, but um, absolutely, uh, there are many doctors who are involved in, in understanding and investigating detox pathways and their inadequacy in children with autism. Mm-hmm. I think that, you know, when I got involved in this, I started with MMR merely because that was what the parents said. And in England at the time, the MMR vaccine was given in isolation, so it was easy for the parents to pinpoint what it was that led to their child's demise. But when I came to the States to testify before Congress in, say, 2000, 2001, then I started to learn about mercury in vaccines, and I, which, of course, isn't in the MMR, and uh, mm-hmm. aluminum in the vaccines, which isn't in MMR, but is in uh, many of the other vaccines. And I thought, good heavens, why would anyone put these knowingly um, highly toxic neurotoxins into the bodies of anyone, let alone children. And um, these things, these, both of these elements, um, aluminum and, and mercury, have the ability not only to poison every enzyme system in the body, but to particularly damage those that are evolving uh, rapidly, such as in children, in babies, the immune system and the brain. And so they're exquisitely vulnerable. And it became clear to me that if you look at this problem in a simplistic way and say, I think I'm right, it's MMR, or I think I'm right, and it's thimerosal, then you are going to make a terrible mistake. You have got to open yourself up as a scientist to the belief, the notion that we don't understand it, and therefore all bets are on. And when you are giving a toxic soup, a sort of perfect storm of uh, metals which can damage in your immune system and alter your ability to deal with a live viral vaccine, then the potential for a synergistic interaction is absolutely enormous. So do not close your mind to any possibilities, but investigate all such possibilities. Mm -hmm. So going back to the MMR vaccine, which was what you were working on specifically, I, I actually read the article, even though it was challenging because the redacted was right on top of it, (laughs) 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 but I managed to get through it. It was, it was only five pages long. I was like, okay, I can get through this. But you mentioned something called uh, the persistent measles vaccine strain virus infection. It sounds like you can get a measles vaccine and then the, the vaccine remains or the, the, the virus will remain in the gut. Is this something that can happen when just in a, a, a typical MMR vaccine? 
Yes, these, you know, measles vaccine, measles virus is well known for its ability to persist in the body and cause cause delayed disease. And um, hmm. it's unusual, certainly with natural measles, but it does occur. And the younger you are exposed to measles, the greater the risk of that persisting encephalitis um, in, in, in some children. Very rarely, but it does produce it. Now, therefore, could the measles vaccine do the same? And the answer is yes. And um, the authorities, including the CDC, have described persistence of measles vaccine strain virus in tissues, and we have demonstrated it in intestinal tissue. So can it happen? Yes. Does that make it the cause of the disease? No. Um, that, But it certainly supports the notion that it could be, and clearly further work is required to draw the sort of causal nexus between the finding of the virus and the inflammation in the intestine. Yeah, that's uh, that's just interesting to me. It's one of those things that they're, you know, I, I just feel like this whole conversation should be so much more transparent so parents can make choices for themselves about what they want to do with their children. And instead, so many of these potential side effects from vaccines are just covered up and you know, parents aren't really encouraged to, to look these things up for themselves and make their own choices. And the industry just kind of continues to push this stuff uh, on parents. So something like, wow, that, you know, the, the virus can actually remain inside of your system for a long time after the vaccine is not something that is publicized. <laughs> so I thought that was interesting no. when I read it in the paper. And the other interesting thing about the paper, which I mean, it's it's shocking that it attracted so much controversy because you really you you come out flatly in, in the article and say, uh, this art, this paper doesn't prove uh, a connection between the MMR vaccine and autism. It just uh, it seems to point that a lot of the parents seem to find a connection. So we should study this a little bit further. Um, amazing that even just positing the connection could bring out so much controversy in the system. It's one of the things yeah. I wanted to bring up with you. I think it almost makes the, the pharmaceutical industry look guilty when the reaction is so much over the top compared to what it ought to be. I mean, you know, you can understand some pharmaceutical representatives maybe being disgruntled by your findings, but, you know, to really come out with the level of attack that they did seems uh, seems way over the top. Can you respond to that? Your listeners need to appreciate, I'm sure that they do, that the future of the pharmaceutical industry is invest in vaccines. There are some 200 new, 300 going through various ages of approval. And... Um, Many of those will find their way onto recommended vaccine schedules, indeed mandatory vaccine schedules if the industry has its way. So they can just make them, they can cause damage, people can die, they don't care. It's irrelevant because they don't have to pick up the tab. So this is where the future, they, they perceive their future to be. Therefore, no one, no one dare raise any questions over the safety of vaccines, let alone their flagship uh, multivalent measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. Because if they do, if that is proven now to be a cause of a, at least a part of the cause of a major epidemic of neurological injury in children, then people will ultimately lose confidence in the entire vaccine program and the vaccine regulators themselves and the industry. And that will be the end of the industry. And therefore, they cannot tolerate any dissent whatsoever. So if you offend the pharmaceutical industry's bottom line and government policy, there is no price that you will not pay. It's not um, it's not conspiracy theory. It's, it's corporate policy. It's fact. Um, 
one only has to look at the Vioxx hearings in Australia to realise that that is the case. Where I mean, you'll remember Vioxx. Vioxx killed up to you know whatever half a million people worldwide. It was an mm. extraordinary violation mm. of of medical ethics and um, regulatory oversight. Where Merck knew in advance that this was happening and um, concealed it and were fined accordingly. But um, in the hearings in Australia, where uh, this was brought to light. There were emails, internal emails, about how they should deal with doctors who criticised Biox, and they were talking about how they would isolate them and discredit them. And the last one read, "We may have to seek them out and destroy them where they live." That isn't conspiracy theory. That is corporate policy. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. And it is so hard for people to believe that they want to try to blow it off. But, you know, unfortunately, we have to look at the facts of the situation and realize that corporate greed uh, is is getting out of control and they really don't care about, uh, you know, our personal health nearly as much as they care about the bottom line. So you were getting involved with questioning the MMR as early as the early 90s. And I know then you you were already involved uh, a little bit with what was going on. I mean, I think do- the doctors obviously knew to call you um, when they when they had um, patients that were connecting autism with the MMR or and they were and they were showing these um, um, these uh, issues with uh, with their bowels. Um, and you were involved with this, uh, maybe this potential lawsuit. I know that some of these things come up later on in your career because they try to use it to discredit you. You were involved with this guy, Richard Barr, um, doing some research for some potential litigation and then also involved in looking into a, a single measles vaccine, which was eventually patented, I think, by the hospital. Um so can you just go into, you know, what was that work? I'm just trying to lead into the the 98 study and how that came about and what your perspective already was in terms of the relationship with the MMR and the MMR and the autism or vaccine community at that time. Certainly, certainly. I mean, firstly, you know, uh, in, in parents started contacting me in advance of doctors contacting me. Parents contacted me in mid-1995 and told me this story, said there's an epidemic of this problem, and they started to come, they started to want to come and see us, and we put the program together to investigate them, and it was purely on the basis of their children's symptoms. They had gone up and inadequately investigated by the medical profession, and our duty was to find out what was going on. In uh, Six months later, in, in January of 1996, I was contacted by a lawyer, Richard Barr, who said, you know, I'm getting the similar stories to presenting to me as a presenting to you. And parents are seeking retribution. They're seeking sort of um, legal relief for, the, for, for their children for, for what has happened. And in England, we still sue, or when I was in England, we sued the pharmaceutical industry rather than the government. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, I was asked by this lawyer, what would you do as a scientist to determine whether there is a causal link between this vaccine and, and the syndrome that you're seeing? And I said, you would you would look for evidence of the virus in the intestine. That would be a first step. It's not exclusive, but that would be based upon our knowledge of the behavior of measles virus. That's what you would do. And so he asked me what it would take to do that. And I said, it would take funding for a technician to sit in the laboratory and do this. And so 
ultimately a grant was given and made available for investigating whether measles virus was present in these children and that started in November 1997 so a good time later but the allegation of course that was made against me is that this was all for the purpose of a lawsuit that I mm -hmm. we were rooting these children for a lawsuit nothing could have been further from the truth that was absolute nonsense and Brian Deere who made the allegation knew that he knew that the parents had come to us long in advance of me becoming aware of a lawsuit or meeting with lawyers and but it, that that was irrelevant to him he his story was his story and he was going to stick to it despite the facts um it's so it's also worth saying that um i've come in for immense criticism for being an expert on behalf of these vaccine injured children um somebody has to represent them because there is no dress otherwise if they're not adequately represented and their parents are going to have to pay millions of pounds or dollars to look after their children if they are the casualties, the collateral injury in a war on infectious disease, then the country, the world, has an absolute moral obligation to look after them for all time because they have paid the price for protecting society. That's how you perceive it. And so it was perfectly fine to be a highly paid expert on behalf of the pharmaceutical industry, of which there were many. Uh, and no one criticizes them for taking the money or representing Big Pharma. But when I represented the children, then that was suddenly disgraceful, disgusting, unacceptable. And this is just a measure of the hypocrisy that has pervaded this argument and continues to pervade this argument to this day. And the allegation was that I never made, I never disclosed it. Well, absolutely I did. And my involvement was disclosed to all of those in the hierarchy of the Royal Free Hospital who needed to know, including my co-authors on the paper, and to the editor of The Lancet at least a year in advance of the publication of the paper, which he subsequently denied, despite us adducing documentary evidence to the effect that he was lying. So um, there you have it, really. It's just a, a measure of the hypocrisy and the lengths that people will go to to dissent in this area. So um, what was the function of the 98 study? What were you looking for? Did you find what you were looking for? What were the conclusions? Because it was, it was almost kind of interesting. Like you, 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 did, the, you did the testing of the children. Um, you, you came up with the results of the tests. Uh, uh, the actual conclusion that I got out of it was you thought that they seemed to have a, a B12 deficiency <laughs> and that there no, needed we... to be further study. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> yeah, we... Um, we... The, the purpose of a case series is to simply take a, a group of patients who have a, a usual and consistent pattern of signs and symptoms and clinical findings that merit publication in their own right. You can't test a hypothesis. You don't know what to compare these children with. This is exactly the way in which Crohn's disease was described, the way in which AIDS was described, the way in which um, mm -hmm. autism and Asperger's syndrome were described. It's a case series. It leads to what are called hypothesis testing studies down the line. Okay. It cannot come to a conclusion on causation, but it can say, this is interesting. This is what the parents say. This is what we find. And this requires further investigation. And it's perfectly legitimate to, to hypothesize what the link between the bowel, the brain, and the vaccine might be. But you're not coming to any firm conclusion. So we did nothing to depart from what is standard medical scientific practice in describing these children um 
And of course, it did lead to hypothesis testing studies. And before I left the Royal Free, we'd published some 15 studies characterizing the bowel disease in great detail, which, of course, no one ever refers to. So there were 12 other people that were involved in the study. Why do you think eventually you seemed to get singled out? I mean, it was you and, and only one other participant ended up losing their license, and then the other person got their license back on appeal. So, um, you know, yet you seem to be someone that they're not interested in accepting back into the fold. <laughs> Three of us were in front of the General Medical Council, the lead investigator, myself, and his second-in-command. And, um, you know... What was interesting about that is that when he came to appeal the decision in the English High Court, so the first wasn't a judicial hearing, it was just a sort of uh, a, um, a regulatory body, doctors judging doctors. When we came to the appeal in the High Court, he and I appealed the GMC's decision, and he, he was funded to appeal. I wasn't, and I couldn't afford to appeal, so I had to withdraw my appeal. When it came to his appeal, the judge absolutely annihilated the GMC. The GMC apologized at the end. They admitted that they had no evidence on which to base their guilty verdict. And therefore, it became irrevocable, the judge's decision. And he made, he said, this should never happen again. So the Lancet paper stands. There was no unethical practice. It was done for clinical reasons. At that stage, the Lancet paper should have been reinstated, but it wasn't because Richard Horton, the editor, was clearly terrified of his losing his job. So right. um, it's a great shame. And then, of course, they couldn't stop the work, so they had to accuse me of fraud. Now, this is utterly bizarre. You've got 13 respected people who published extensively in medical and scientific journals, thousands of publications between them. And you have this very controversial paper, and yet I'm singled out as having somehow hoodwinked them all into right. falsified <laughs> diagnoses. And they just went behind their back and they didn't notice. Oh, please, no, really. It is the most bizarre notion that you've ever come across, that they, they all meticulously went through every aspect of the study and the findings for which they were responsible, and we all agreed and signed up to the paper. We knew this was going to come to public attention. We knew this was going to be controversial. There was no mm -hmm. way that I could suddenly, by sleight of hand, have changed anything and got away with it. Nor would I ever wanted to. But not the point. The point is that it could not have happened. But people, the medical system, and everybody else was prepared to ignore that. That overwhelming, glaring, uh, obvious fact right. that because they, they wanted to. And um, it's, of course, subsequently shown to be absolute nonsense. And um, Brian Deere you know, is a complete shot and a hack and needs to be exposed for what he is. Uh, but there we are. You know, it, it, it's now part of the sort of mainstream view that this is the case. And... Um, it's all a huge scam. Yeah, I mean, I can't believe it in my in my own community when I try to talk about this stuff. You know, people are like, "Oh, that Andrew Wakefield." You know, he he was it was proven to be a fraud, <laughs> and it's just like, "Well, have you even done any research? Have you looked into this at all?" You know, <laughs> and no, but but they heard it on the evening news, and it was repeated over and over again, so everybody believes it without really looking into it. 
I wanted to get, um, I just wanted to kind of clarify the timeline and then just let everybody who's listening know about um, this guy, Brian Deere. I think that his, the paper that you're talking about is called How the Case Against the MMR Vaccine Was Fixed. And that was published, I think, in 2010, right? So there was a, that, there was 1998, then a, a flurry of publicity about the study trying to debunk it. But it really came back to a head in, in this 2010 area. I was wondering if, this was was this as a result of the publishing of your book in 2010? Do you think that they were trying to to kind of stop the the to counter the press that you were going to give bringing the book to to publish, or did you publish the book afterwards after a lot of this happened? It could be part of it. You know what happened was I moved from the UK to the US and continued the work, uh, and the the US was the only place I could continue it with sort of private philanthropic means and. Uh, we were doing some very, very important science with university collaborations, and it was moving along, and they had to stop that. Somehow they had failed to switch off the tap of this research uh, with the GMC, and so they had to stop that. And the way they did that was to declare that it was a fraud. It was completely baseless. It was based upon no evidence whatsoever, uh, apart from the word of a disgruntled and discredited hack uh, working for Murdoch's News International. And the shades that um, the BMJ, the British Medical Journal, debased itself in gutter journalism in order to sustain that argument. And um, it was a very, very sad day for medical science. Uh, we subsequently tried to sue them in Travis County Court in Texas because mm-hmm. There is a long-arm long statute in Texas, and the BMJ profits from Texas medical schools to which it sells its journal. So we had, we should have had, by rights, jurisdiction. In fact, we were ultimately denied jurisdiction, and so the case couldn't be heard. But what we did do is to depose Deere and others and did gain access to some extraordinary revelations, which oh, wow. not only debunk their claims, but also show that the fraud was on their part. Let me give you just... just and that is a paper they claim that Brian Deere's uh, three papers in the BMJ were externally peer-reviewed and as you may know and as your listeners may know what that does is give the paper the imprinter of having been uh, scrutinized by an independent scientific authority or authorities and past muster that this is um, worthy of publication those papers were never externally peer-reviewed they were not as a matter of fact it was fraud it was a lie and so before you even got into the text of the paper you you've come across your first fraudulent claim but nonetheless what that did is give to readers the sense that this had been scrutinized when it hadn't so um you know we were denied our day in court the bmj got off very lightly but it is far from over and part of the Part of the work now is to, call, you know, bring them to task, call them to task for, for what they did. And uh, a lot of people are working to make that happen. 
So let's talk about the actual integrity of the science, because it seems like, I, I mean, I can tell you that, like, again, even in my own community, I mean, I had a friend that basically had to stop working at our local radio station because he was trying to get some of this on the air. And they, you know, and there was such a pushback to just talk about vaccine injury of any sort on the air at our local radio station, you know, that he wasn't because so many people have heard over and over again that uh, your studies have been debunked, that they were not scientific. So can you, can has there actually been any real science that's been done to quote unquote, to counter the evidence that was presented in your paper? Or has it just been entirely uh, journalists? I mean, this guy, Brian Deere, 12 years after the fact is interpreting, I mean, I read his paper and he's going and interviewing the parents uh, of the children in your study, some of them, one of them, he even admitted, complained after he interviewed them because of his his tactics. And he found one parent that seemed disgruntled. But even uh, after 12 years, I mean, what is the what are the what are the parents memories going to be like? Um, so he's he's kind of twisting what the parents are saying. He's twisting what you're saying. And he's coming up with this. It's what everything what everybody says mm-hmm. he twist for his own narrative um he's he's barely he's not really worth discussing further to be honest i mean it's just <laughs> fair um, enough and but i the, the the um let me give you one example and that is that in 2000 2001 i had a series of meetings at congress and with the cdc and shared with them our thoughts and clearly one of them is why this child why not the next child why are all children let's say given MMR, why are some children damaged and some not? And my group's interest was patterns of exposure. Was it something to do with the pattern of exposure that predicted which children were going to get injured? Now, what I mean by that is, you know, were they younger? Were they the ones who got the vaccine when they were younger? Did they get a higher dose? Did Mm -hmm. they get two doses? And these kinds of questions, patterns of exposure. And we put forward the hypothesis that it was age, that younger children, you got the vaccine at one year of age, you were more likely to succumb to an adverse reaction like autism than if you got it at three years of age. And that's kind of intuitive because your immune system is likely to be more highly developed and able to deal with it. So we shared that hypothesis with the CDC and they went away and tested it. And it was tested in a study that was ultimately published in 1994 and said that they found no effect. Fourteen years later, after they'd done that study, Dr. William Thompson, senior scientist from the CDC, who was responsible for designing the study, collecting the data, analyzing the study, and presenting the results. In other words, a key figure Mm -hmm. in that study came forward and said, we lied. We found a clear association between MMR vaccine, age of exposure, and autism risk. And we decided to cover it up and to destroy the incriminating documents. We put millions of children in harm's way of permanent, serious neurological injury because we wanted to protect the MMR program. That is what happened. He was admitting to what amounts to the worst scientific fraud in the history of the world. That case was used, among others, to destroy the chances of justice in the vaccine court for over five and a half thousand children with autism and prevent trillions of dollars in damages being awarded 
it's made it so much worse. Mm -hmm. So many children have been damaged in the meantime. The problem has escalated out of control. And so much of this could have been prevented. And so the science that lays claim to the fact that there is no credible link between vaccines and autism is a lie. Not in my words, not in the words of my producer, but in the words of a senior scientist from the CDC who was responsible for that. And that is the basis of our film Vaxxed, which has swept the country and is sweeping the world and brings the truth. And the power of that film lies in the fact that it's not my opinion or Dell's opinion. It is the opinion of the CDC themselves. And not only that, it's not theory. It's fact. He gave us all of the documents, all of the analyses plans, all of the serial iterations of the analysis, all of the changes, why they were made, all of the documents that they thought they'd destroyed, he decided to keep because he knew it was illegal to destroy those documents and he provided them to us years later. So they were caught with their trousers well and truly down. They -hmm. thought these documents had been destroyed and we have them. They are the basis of the film. And people have said, well, that film's false. You've made it up. Let me tell you this, you tell your listeners this, that we have accused these doctors in public, in a very, very widely viewed documentary, we have accused them of the worst medical fraud in the history of the world, one of the worst humanitarian crimes ever committed because they were morally and professionally responsible for the health of the children of this country. If there was one word of that documentary that was false or inaccurate, we would have been sued to the moon and back again for defamation. There has been not one whisper. Right. Not one. Why? Because they know that it is the truth. That's why. What about how we always hear about there's, you know, a hundred a hundred uh, scientific studies out there that show that there's no connection between autism and vaccines? I, I mean, the, you know, the people that push this are are, are convinced that uh no the the science has proven this um so you know we shouldn't even be talking about it where does that come from are i mean are there all these these i you know it's funny because whenever they i kind of get it and i just i you know i don't have the time to go through the hundred different studies that people are talking about you know to go through study by study and figure out well what's wrong with this one or what's wrong with that one and they never I, you know i don't know it's it's difficult to have that conversation about the how 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 much integrity is in the science of all of those studies because there seem to be at least according to you know a lot of people according to the press about vaccines uh there's just study after study that says that there's no problem and so what do you, what do you think about this are all of those studies Go go ahead. Yeah. Completely ignore the hundreds of papers which say there are a problem and there are websites with those studies. So that's one part of it. So they selectively quote those studies that suggest there isn't a problem, but, you know, deny the existence by exclusion of those studies that show there is a problem. Then we come to the fact that we now know what the CDC's quality uh, study quality is about and it's about fraud and that's so we can discount anything that the cdc has ever published because it's completely untrustworthy then we come to the studies that were commissioned by the cdc from people like dr paul thorson from uh denmark and then we discover that dr paul thorson is wanted by interpol for um wire fraud embezzlement double dipping in salaries taking money from his uh, own university and from the CDC, committing fraud, 21 counts, I think, of wire fraud and embezzlement and other 
This is the kind of person that the CDC does business with, that commissions to do its science. The man is a complete and utter criminal, and he, he should be extradited from Denmark and face trial in the US. But the State Department seems reluctant for some reason to do that. I wonder <laughs> why. So this is the kind of science you're dealing with. Um, and it's very, very embarrassing. Very embarrassing. Uh, so... Really, um, you can discount anything that you've heard and start again. And then you come to studies. A simple study would be comparing the long-term health outcomes across the board in children who've fully vaccinated compared with those who have never been vaccinated. That's the baseline study. That's what people want to see and will never see it. The CDC have been told by Congress that that study is essential. They have refused to do it. Why? Well, it has been done now. It's been done by Tony Mawson from Mississippi. And he looked at homeschoolers. And what he found is that um, health outcomes in unvaccinated children compared with vaccinated children um, showed a remarkable difference. Children across the board who had not been vaccinated were much healthier in terms of both immunological and neurological uh, disorders than children who had been vaccinated. And that is terrifying. And most importantly, to me at least, is in a second paper, he looked at children who were, for example, small for dates or premature. He looked at birth characteristics and he found that if you were a baby who was premature, born before 37 weeks, then your risk for these disorders, if you had been vaccinated, was vastly increased. In other words, it's another age of exposure phenomenon. The younger you are gestationally, when you get the vaccines, the greater the risk of damage. And so why has this study not been done by the US government? Because they know what it will show and they are absolutely terrified of it. It is pretty amazing. I mean, we hear over and over again about, oh, it's the science. It's all about the science. You get called. I'm sure you've been called anti-science. I, you know, I, I talked with uh, Del Bigtree a little bit about this, too, the producer of Vax. And we were just laughing about, you know, this anti-science. What are we talking? We're talking about science here. I mean, you're talking about this baseline study. That's how good science starts. So why can't we get the CDC to do um, you know, a real serious baseline study across the board so we can start to figure out what the problem with this is. And I think the answer is obvious as you've come to conclude that uh, there's just too much money involved. I mean, they don't want to know. <laughs> so they're making sure that we can't find out. Yeah, the C CDC is not fit to do any further safety research. Mm -hmm. It's not fit. It's proven that it's uh, completely fraudulent. And Thompson himself says we are not fit to do this. We should not be doing it. Wow. Should be done by a completely independent agency um, that has no conflicts of interest whatsoever because we have proven ourselves to be inadequate to the task. Not only that, profoundly fraudulent and deceptive. And we're still trying to get Dr. Thompson in front of Congress, and he's not, he, he should be testifying in front of Congress so at least people can know. Um, but it's not happening. So. You know, again, there's just another monkey wrench in this whole movement to try to wake people up to what's really going on behind the scenes in terms of the actual vaccine science that's happening. Uh, that's, I guess, got to be frustrating. I mean, thanks for your work and the and for Vax and this new documentary that's coming out that's, uh, you know, hopefully going to keep waking more and more people up. I wanted to know about what your personal um, 
feelings are about vaccines in general. I mean, in terms of what you would do for your children, how that's changed over the years. I imagine as a young doctor, like almost everyone, you were very pro-vaccine. Uh, and so, so what are you thinking now? Do you, you know, do you do you want to wait for vaccines? Do you want to limit the number of vaccines, or you know, are you completely anti-vaccine at this point? Where have you come with it? You know, when I was a doctor, I learned nothing about that. You know, as a, as a medical student, we weren't taught about vaccines. So we were left sort of vulnerable to the dogma that they're the greatest thing that we've ever done. Of course, they're not. Other than we, it's about antibiotics as well. And then the dream turns to a nightmare. So um, I then had, you know, I've got four children and we started vaccinating them. And I found this, we got this information and I thought, stop right there. And we didn't give them any further vaccines. What would I do if I, firstly, it's not my job to advise anyone on what they should do. I simply present people with the facts and they need to make up their own minds, get educated. There's plenty of information out there. So I, but the honest answer I can give is if I had a baby today, would I vaccinate them or not? And the answer is no. And that is um, entirely on the shoulders of the regulatory authorities who have not only failed to do their job, but have corrupted the work that has been done to the point where I simply do not believe them. And therefore I'm not going to expose I would not expose a new child of mine were I to have one based upon the, their, their failings so, and certainly not based upon their propaganda. So that is a, an invidious situation that they have created for which they are responsible and which they are in, unable to clean up. And so it's going to be left to a new authority, a new administration to, to, do, to put that right. All right. Well, we've got about 10 minutes left in the show. I wanted to try to get a general overview with you while I have you here just about, you know, what do you think is going on? I, you know, you can make it about the scientific community or even uh, our society in general, where it seems like this kind of corruption is, is so endemic. I mean, there's something about the system in general that it's gotten so powerful and people that are trying to do the right thing. I mean, almost invariably end up in a situation like like what you've had to deal with. I mean, you're just a guy who's trying to do your job. You're listening to the parents. You're listening to the patients. And, uh, you know, the next thing you know, because your science doesn't find what the pharmaceutical companies want you to find, then um, you get taken to task for it. So, you know, what are your thoughts at this point after dealing with this for almost 20 years? <laughs> 25 years, I've been 25 years. I, you know, yeah. um, the pharmaceutical industry have taken a long-term view of this and have infiltrated politics. They've infiltrated the media. They've really assumed control of, of every aspect of our lives to keep us chronically sick and dependent upon their products. I think the problem that I see after 25 years in this fight is that we live globally in a corporatocracy, that the governments of the world have... Uh, come to serve the pharmaceutical industry in particular rather than the people that they're sworn to protect. And so what we must do collectively is to resist that. We have to fight that. I mean, the government must come back and represent the people who, who you know, elected them. And that is not happening. And it may well be that what we're looking at is the end of the First Republic of the United States of America because it's ceased to have any value if it does not do its job on behalf of the people. And it's interesting, the founding fathers of the United States of America recognize exactly this. They recognize the dangers of this kind of corporatocracy and uh, told us, warned us to beware. Um, and here we are 
um, not heeding the lessons of history. Uh, so what's happening worldwide? Well, in response to Vaxxed uh, and the impact of Vaxxed has been a sort of international effort by the drug companies and their lobbyists to mandate vaccines, to make their market um, mandatory. So that every child becomes a sort of number in the corporate game they're playing to uh, a lifelong marketplace for their products. And um, that is an utter disgrace. You simply cannot, not only is it a human rights issue, but when you have products that are neither safe nor effective to mandate them is effectively medical experimentation, forced medical experimentation. And we know from experience with um, Germany in the 1930s and 40s where that one went. So right. um, it is. we have got to resist it. We've got to prevent it. I've never known in 25 years I've been in this, uh, our enemy, uh, you know, in such disarray. And I call them the enemy because that's what they are. They perceive this as a war and they are the enemy. And, and uh, they are in utter disarray. They don't know what to do. They have been exposed by the revelations of people like William Thompson. And uh, their lies are self-evident for all to see. And so um, I think that they're, they're a sinking ship right now. And my experience is that rats leave us a sinking ship and we're going to see more whistleblowers come forward. <laughs> well, I do hope you're right. I mean, the more research that I've done into this, the, the more it just becomes obvious that, you know, all of these people that are yelling, oh, this is science, this is science. And then you look at their science <laughs> and it really doesn't hold up. And then uh, you find people like yourself and you really if you really are, are willing to analyze it, you know, these guys get away with it because not enough people are willing to go and look at your, you know, at your paper. They're going to listen to Anderson Cooper on CNN and they're not going to, you know, go and look for themselves at the papers and study the science for themselves. So unfortunately, a lot of people are easily manipulated. Um, and as you're especially going to be manipulated if you're listening to, to corporate science. That's a lot of what this show has been about, trying to get people to listen to more independent media instead of uh, continuing to listen to the corporate media, because it's all actually interconnected. I'm sure you've experienced this over and over again, where the pharmaceutical corporations are linked with the media corporations. And so the, the corporate mouthpieces are saying everything that the pharmaceutical companies want, want, you know, want them to say, and people just aren't getting the real information. Um, so just a few minutes left in the show, I wanted to finish with uh, maybe one other idea that's been coming up over and over again in, in the work that I've seen from you and in the documentary, which is that you seem to be really um, emphasizing what the patients are saying to you, um, which is the opposite of what a lot of the mainstream medical establishment seems to want to do, which is to impose what's going on, you know, impose their belief system onto the patient. So so can you just say a few words about that? Because I think, you know, this was something that came up uh, with Dell as well when I spoke with him just over and over again when you have 10,000 stories that are, I took my kid to get vaccinated and then the next day they had autism, you know, like maybe you should listen to that. But just in general, you know, isn't it good medicine to listen to your patients? It's essential. I mean, it, anything less is is not medicine at all. Mm -hmm. And it's a great sadness to me that we seem to have, in our infinite arrogance and ignorance as doctors, forgotten that. And that's what's led us into this situation. It's the, the, don't question the man in the white coat. But people forget. And I had this conversation with a scientist reporting for BuzzFeed today that 
medicine is not science. Medicine begins in the clinic with listening to the patient. That is not an anecdote, that's medicine. It informs subsequent scientific inquiry. But we listen to the patients because they provide us with a clue as to what happened to their child. And these parents weren't anti-vaccine. They took their children to be vaccinated on time. They're not looking for uh, something to blame. They're simply telling you what happened to their child. And um, I deal with this a lot. In, you know, we're, we're talking to parents about sudden infant death syndrome. And the doctor said, your child had a vaccine 48 hours ago. Your child's now dead. That's just coincidence. What they failed to understand is that there was a continuous medical process that started with the vaccine, that then led to a high fever, that led to distress and a high-pitched scream, that led to the child going into coma, that led to death. That is a continuum. These are not two events that happened separately in time and space. Right. They were linked by a pathological process evolving in that particular patient. And you only get to understand that by listening to the parent. But this is mundane. This isn't difficult. This is medicine 101. But doctors seem to come back time and again to the notion that these events are completely coincidental and unrelated. And doctors are absolutely failing at every level in this to do their job properly unless they listen to their patients. Well, all right. Very good. I think that brings us uh, about to the end of this interview, but I really appreciate uh, that you were willing to sit here and talk to me for an hour about what's going on. It's nice to be able to clarify what's what's happened in terms of, of these scientific studies uh, with your case in particular, but really to have this general conversation about what's going on with medicine in general so that people can be more informed and make better choices for themselves. Do you have any kind of contact information that you want people to give or if they have any more information or just any other final words that you may have? Please, yeah, no, we'll, we'll, we'll be at the Q&A at the Angelica Theatre in New York tonight. We'll be going out on uh, Vaxed, We Are Vaxed, which is the, the um, Facebook Live. We'll be going out on Periscope there, hopefully. Um, please go to Vaxed.com, uh, the website, check it out. Mm-hmm. And watch Polly's stories on We Are Vaxed and on uh, YouTube, um, the stories of the bus tour around America, all the parental interviews, uh, discussion of vaccine injury and comparing, you know, families who haven't vaccinated with those who have. Um, there's an abundance of information out there. So please check it out and um, and go to, uh, yes, uh, and for the film tonight, The Pathological Optimist, uh, yeah, check out the website for that as well. I think all the Facebook page, all right, great. Thanks, Dr. Wakefield, for being on the shift. It's been awesome. That's uh, I got it. Um, the Pathological Optimist Film dot com. If you want to find out more about the film and where it's going to be, uh, starting uh, in uh, New York, and then Los Angeles next week, and then around the country after that. So please, everybody, check it out. And if you like what you're hearing on the shift. Uh, Please think about becoming a patron. I can use all the help I can get for producing these. Uh, That is patreon.com backslash the shift. If you want to find out more information about this program, look me up on Facebook at the shift with Doug McKenty. Join the conversation on Twitter at D McKenty and find out all of my archives and other information at the shiftnow.com. All right. That about wraps it up. Thanks again, Dr. Wakefield. It was great talking to you. I really appreciate your work and good luck with everything going on into the future. Okay, I better get to the movie theater. Thanks.
Great. Take care.